So just to give you see an example, two examples of what I want to discuss, namely the challenge of changing preferences for preference or desire-based well-being <coughs> theories. And of course, it's not news to you, but there's another challenge. And I think it's especially worrisome for preference theories because, as we've been discussing, they quite often pride themselves of having a neat sort of um, constraint on well-being, namely that it's sort of up to the subject to decide what's better or worse for the person, right? Uh, and I can sometimes call this sort of uh, the, uh, well, Tobos Sumner, Harsanyi, a lot of people have been sort of stressing this kind of constraint. It's somehow decided by the subject what's better or worse. And of course, that's fine when there is one subject with one set of preferences, right? But what if there is one subject, but the subject will change the preferences across time or across available outcomes? Then you don't have one subject with one preference, and you can't easily then, well, how do you apply that kind of constraint? That's the question, right? And uh, so it's sort of especially worrisome because that's, that's what you think is the highlight of the theory, right? That we can actually beat the objectivist theory because look, ha, you have all these groups and who's going to decide how to rank them? We have an answer, the subject. But if there are one subject, a lot of different preferences, different times, then there's an issue. So here are two sort of examples. If uh, you become a philosopher, you will come to prefer this life to being a fiddler. To being Swedish folk music, actually, should I add. If you become a Swedish folk fiddler, you will come to prefer this life to being a philosopher. So this is sort of a case where you, whatever you choose, you will uh, prefer that to the other alternative. And it might look like it's not such a nasty choice. <laughs> uh, but if, uh, as I'll come to, if you're, what's better for you is determined by your preferences, looks like there's no determinant answer what's better for you in the career choice. Depends on which option you choose, right? What's better for you? And then you have the unmarried person's dilemma to whether or not to wed. I think it's uh, Kierkegaard, but I haven't found the reference. It's usually sort of on the internet saying this is Kierkegaard's. But I've never found that in published text. So if you get married, you will prefer not to be married. And if you stay unmarried, you will prefer being married. <laughs> so that's more of a problem people think, because then you reverse your preference and you sort of you yearn at the other alternative, right? You're not, uh, uh, you prefer the other uh, non-actual alternative. So the problem then is to find a stable standard of well-being when the standard is set by preference that may not be stable themselves. And standard desire theory seems to then, as I said, imply that in these cases, looking at the first condition, something is intrinsically for you, uh, if you intrinsically prefer it, seem to suggest that what's better for you depends on which op option you choose, which option is realized. There's no stable answer to two than which life is better for me, right? If I go to become the fiddler in Sweden, uh, then that will be better life for me. If I uh, go become a philosopher, then that's the better life for me. So I seem to have no determinant answer. Now, the standard design theory usually actually adds a clause about what's good for you as well, especially if you think about philosophers, actually. Uh, economists usually does talk about the first condition. But philosophers are quite keen on talking about the second. They talk about, want to talk about what's good, what's bad, and what's neutral for people. And here the idea is that what's good is what you intrinsically, what's intrinsically good is what you <coughs> intrinsically want for its own sake. Just a sort of commentary. Wanting can mean very different things, of course, here, right? So I think it's crucial here to 
not think that it's relevant to satisfy any old want, because you can, of course, want things in the sense that you want the presence over its absence, right? So I might, for instance, want not to have a headache rather than have a headache. But it looks strange to say that merely by the fact that I'm not having a headache, you add something positive to my life. You avoid adding something negative, of course, right? But that's not itself uh, a positive thing. But the absence of a bad thing is not itself a good thing. And I, re I think that's you can easily fix that by introducing some polarity in the attitudinal structure. And here I'm borrowing from uh, Tom Herka, in fact. So roughly speaking, to favor something is <coughs> not just to want it. It's actually to want it and be positively oriented towards it in your actions, emotions, feelings, or perhaps evaluative responses. Perhaps these evaluative ceilings we talked about before might come in there. Seems to be good. Um, or to disfavor something, of course, then is to be negatively oriented in similar ways. And neutral is just to be indifferently oriented. So if you add that to the desire standard theory, you, you have a bit more plausibility, I think. Because then what's good for you is to satisfy favorings. Right? What's bad for you is to satisfy disfavorings. Now, I think also this sort of framework can include sort of the happiness as life satisfaction approach, which is quite popular now. As I said, I just came back for a conference in Paris where this was discussed in great detail, especially the empirical results, in fact. And when it comes to the philosophical background, uh, a few philosophers have been working on this, and this looks like roughly what they have in mind, right? So they think that it's not enough when you talk about happiness to think about how it feels. It's also about some kind of quasi-judgment, some kind of measuring up here, and some kind of set of standards you're measuring up against. So uh, if you apply that, you can use favoring to cover that too, right? So favor X can be seen as that X measures up favorably against your own standards, and you feel satisfied with X. Because usually they want to add that you should also feel something. It's not just enough that you, your life <coughs> measures up favorably against your own standards. In this favor, then, will be that does not measure up against your own standards. So I think the, the framework I'm uh, introducing is broad enough to include this kind of happiness as life satisfaction. So we get the following uh, ideas of the polarity-based side theory, what's good for you, what's you, what you favor, bad for you, what you disfavor, neutral for you, what you're neutral towards, and what's better for you is what you prefer. And here, of course, preference can mean very different things. I mean, quite often in economics, it just means the disposition to choose. But that's not much of a, an attitude, I would say, because that disposition can be there without any specific attitude. So uh, to line it up with this kind of polarity-based design theory, preference can be seen as the following things, kind of disjunctive uh, thing to say. If you prefer something to something else, there are these options. Uh, you, if you prefer x to y, either you favor x and favor y less, or Disfavor x, disfavor y less, or you um, favor x and neutral towards y, you favor x, you disfavor y, or you neutral towards x and disfavor y. So these are the options when you prefer something. So it's basically seeing preference as, as a not one attitude, but actually a fact about two monadic attitudes. Right, so now I'm going to take that for granted and show you some problems with this kind of desire theory. Uh, as I said, this we have the challenge of changing preferences. We'll come back to that. 
that's all, all also going to show that there's a challenge of inconsistency, in fact, avoiding inconsistency. So in order to introduce that kind of argument, I need to give you some a toy model and a sort of a framework to lo look at. Uh, so the idea is we look use these grids to um, to summarize facts about these favorings, these favorings, neutral attitudes and preferences. And uh, um, at the side here, we talk about the X self, Y self, and Z self. You're thinking about the <coughs> uh, attitudes. If you look at the X self there, and you look at the the row, what you get is the the values, attitudinal values attached to the X life, Y life, and Z life from the perspective of the person. If X is realized, right? So X is a life there. So if X is realized, then the self will. So you see here, attach five to an X life favorite, right? And but favor the Y life more, and put Z life in the middle when it comes to favorites, right? So I'm going to use this sort of locution X self, Y self, and Z self all through the talk, even though it's pretty strange, right? Because it might suggest I have some weird metaphysical view that sort of the person is can be divided into modal slices. Right? There's one little slice here of me, and there's another slice of me in an alternative um, possibi possibility. No, that's not the idea. I'm just summarizing this counterfactual information. Otherwise, I would have to tell you what you would prefer if X were realized is the following. <laughs> so I want to avoid this sort of counterfactual talk because that would take a lot of time and be quite messy to read. So that's why I'm just simplifying to what X self, Y self, and Z self. So moving to the Y self row then. There you can see the how, the, how I would uh, then uh, rank or what kind of attitudes I would have towards X life, Y life, and Z life from that perspective. So in this case, you can see that I would have a disfavoring towards the X life, uh, and disfavoring towards the Y life, but an even stronger one, and then be neutral towards the Z life, and so on. So you go down, you can then go through all the lo logically possible lives, I guess, and you can see how the person would rank them and what kind of attitudes they would have towards the various lives. Right. Uh, so, this is a, a toy model, right? And for obvious reasons, um, it has to be. Otherwise, to sort of try to summarize all the information, I have to get into the nitty gritty of looking at the temporal issues too, right? How do people value various parts of their lives, which we discussed in the previous talk. So I'm going to just avoid that by saying those there are no inter intertemporal conflicts of attitudes. That, that's, that is an issue, of course. I have to deal with that, but I'm not dealing with that. So I'm looking at internal world or internal life conflicts rather than inter, uh, intertemporal conflicts. <coughs> uh, I'm assuming the same duration of life, so you don't have to worry about extending how much value is there in extension of life. I'm also thinking about the global attitudes, the attitudes you have towards your life as a whole, right? Because as we know, we can also have attitudes towards parts of your life, and there's a tricky issue how to weigh these things against each other, right? So, but I'm avoiding that question too. And then finally, I'm thinking about fully opinionated preferers in the sense that they do put little value in each of these uh, boxes. And of course, in real life, it's not like you, you order every possible life or that you have an attitude towards every possible life. But it's just a simplified discussion. So, um, the preference reversal case then, how would they look in this kind of framework? Well, the career choice, you have then the two selves of you, philosophy self and fiddle self. 
and then you have your uh, two lives, philosophy life and fiddle life. And of course, for them to depict the case I just gave, you have to make sure that A is greater than B and D is greater than C. That's what the information got from the preferences, right? And but as I said, we can get more information now, right? We can also get information about whether you favor or disfavor your life as a fiddler. And if you favor, then D must be greater than zero. Disfavor, D must be smaller than zero. Similarly, about your philosophy life, you get information about whether you favor it and disfavor it in exactly the same way. So you can use it to, and to wed or not to wed example can also be captured in this framework. So here, of course, the idea is that whatever life you lead, you will prefer the other one. So therefore, B must be greater than A and C must be greater than D. But we again can get more information by asking you what, whether you favor or disfavor your married life. And again, if you favor it, A is greater than zero. A is greater, smaller than zero if you disfavor and so on. So it's pretty very obvious what's going on here. Right, so that's just to give you sort of an idea about how to apply the, the framework. Uh, to show you this sort of inconsistency, I'm going to assume two conditions here on well-being. The first one says, your ex-life is good for you if your ex-self favors your ex-life. In other way around. So the idea is that it's a kind of world-bound idea about well-being, not the attitude. So who's going to say about the uh, goodness of the life is the, the ex depends on the, the, the self in that life. Right? So the ex-life is you look at the uh, favorings of the ex-life, uh, ex which is the ex-self. It's well bound in that sense. And then um, the other notion is a comparative endorsement restriction, which um, says that if your ex-life is better for you than your Y-life, then either your ex-self prefers your ex-life to your Y-life, or your Y-self uh, prefers your ex-life to your Y-life. So one of, the one of these two cells has to have a preference for X over Y in order for X to be better for you than uh, your wildlife. So this would rule out that something can be better for you than something else, even though no matter which life you were to lead, you would prefer the other, other life. So it looks, on the face of it, quite intuitive. Right? And of course, this looks like a pure uh, satisfaction, pure desire preference theory, but you can, if you want to, think about these conditions as um, part of a more sort of extended endorsement theory, perhaps, where you actually have some kind of conditions on the worth of the lives as well, right? So you could have an idea that if the ex-life is worthy of being uh, um, lived, then it is good for you if you, you favor it as well, right? And you can also have similar constraints here. If the ex-life and your y-life are perhaps on a par when it comes to worthiness, then perhaps your preference should be uh, crucial or if they can perhaps not be compared in terms of worth, then your preference should be crucial. So you don't have to assume pure desire theory to get the results I'm going to show you. So what's the inconsistency then? Well, uh, here's the example. X-self is neutral towards its X-life, and it disfavors the alternative Y-life. Your Y-self uh, favors, to degree H, uh, the X-life, and also favors his own life, the Y life, but favors the alternative X life more. That's the situation, and it can be filled in in various ways, I guess. Uh, so world-bound well-being now will imply that 
your ex-life is not good for you since your ex-self do not in fact favor your ex-life. And your Y-life is good for you since your Y-self favors your Y-life, right? You have six there and zero over in the left corner there. So, uh, from the fact that your ex-life is not good for you, since the follow that your ex-life is either bad or neutral for you, assuming now that the next life is either good, bad, or neutral. I know that's not very, not completely uncontroversial, because there can be cases perhaps of indeterminacy of value, right? But I'm putting those aside. And we look, look at the case where we don't have that kind of indeterminacy. Alternatively, you could then perhaps add a condition that if you're neutral towards a life, then it's neutral for you then of course you would get uh, uh, the other <coughs> would work as well. But I, I'm just sticking to three now. Now putting this together, you get that your Y-life is better for you than your X-life, since what's good for you must be better than what's bad or neutral for you. But the comparative endorsement constraint implies that your Y-life is not better for you than your X-life, since neither your X-self nor your Y-self prefers your Y-life to your X-life. So we get the contradiction that it's the Y-life is both better and not better for you than your X-life. So we need to give up at least one of these um, types. How much time do you have? Well, the session ends at yeah. um, um, half past. So for the presentation, how much? Sorry, I've got, yeah, that's right. Oh. Another 10 minutes. Yeah. So, uh, actually, do you have any questions on this? Of course, it, it's a scripture that it, you're with me at this point. Can you just explain five again? Five? Yeah, yeah so the, the comparative endorsement uh, condition says that uh, if uh, a so, uh, life is better for you than another life, then either the X self must prefer it or the Y self must prefer it. Right? In this case, neither the X-self nor the Y-self prefers your Y-life to your X-life. Therefore, both sides are better. Neither prefers it. In fact, that the reverse happens. Uh, that's good. Okay? So, possible ways out. There are actually quite a few possible ways out here, and I've discussed these in various publications in the past. Um, you could try to go for ideal rational attitudes and say that actually if you go for those, you get a unique vantage point. Because then we have this, what you would desire or prefer, if you had all information and reason rationally and so on. I think that's, uh, I'm not going to discuss this much here, but the, uh, if it's true that you, you get a unique vantage point, vantage point you, that's unique in comparison to the whole class of possible lives, you've basically lost the plot as a desire theorist, right? Because then there's no sensitivity to how, what kind of person you are. The relevant preferences that determines the value of a life will be uniform and constant across all possible lives. And then, of course, the sensitivity to what kind of person you are is, not, is lost completely. And I think there are other problems with that, too. Actual attitudes. What are the attitudes you have in the actual world? And I've discussed this elsewhere why I think that's uh, wrong. Uh, relativism would be to relativize the notion of good for, make it even more suspect. So good for you relative to world. So you move on, relativize it to world, and perhaps to time, I guess, as well. Uh, think comparatively. That's the option where you just look at the comparative preferences and forget about the favorings, disfavorings. Think vertically, while well, you just look at the, the, vert the vertically at the, uh, uh, at the 
row, uh, the, co the columns, and horizontally you look at the rows. I'm not going to discuss all that stuff. Right? I'm going to focus on my own sort of solution, favorite solution, everything you should think diagonally. And I'm going to focus on one objection to that fact, because we don't have much time. But I'm happy to discuss <coughs> these other things later on. So why don't I, why, why do I sort of first of all think that we should give up comparative endorsement? Because that's what I think. Well, here's one example uh, where it looks like it's not really working well because the X self here is indifferent between X life and Y life, but they really hate it, hate both. <laughs> the Y self is also indifferent between the y X life and the Y life, but they find it fantastic. Both of them are fantastic. Now, if you have this comparative endorsement constraint, you couldn't say that the uh, y-life is better than the x-life. Right? You, 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 there's no preference here from either the x-self or the y-self for the y-life, the indifference. So I think that's a pretty good objection to this comparative endorsement, uh, and a good objection to then a lot of sort of what's going on in some, some parts of uh, Economics when they seem to just focus on the comparative preferences. <coughs> so my solution is then to reject this comparative endorsement constraint, but stick to the world-bound will be idea. So the idea is that X life is good for you if your X self favors your X life. That's the world-bound well-being condition, and then you just apply the same reasonings for what's bad for you, and what's neutral for you. It's all world-bound in this sense, and when it comes to the comparative value you have to look at the diagonal in this grid, right? So you look at, um, to go back here, so in order to decide which life is best, best you look at the, um, I should have, actually I can use this, can't I? Yeah, that, that one and that one, sorry. <laughs> I, could, I thought I could use this one. That one and that one, yeah. So that's the diagonal thing, right? And since this is, um, you favor this and you disfavor that, that means that life is better than life, that life. And that's the idea. And of course, you could formulate it sort of in, in this catchy slogan that X life is better for you than your Y life. If your X self wants your X life more than your Y self wants your Y life. Once more here though, it's a little bit tricky. So it has to again be spelled out in terms of a disjunction of various cases, namely you can have either both favors, but Excel favors more. Both favors, but Excel is neutral, and so on. I don't have to go through all these things. It's just uh, the same thing I did with the preference notion. That's the idea. Quite simple, and perhaps you might think, yeah, so what? That's the solution. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, what would happen then if you apply it? Again, you would look then at the these two values, right? So if it turns out that if I were to leave the philosopher life. Um, I would in fact uh, favor it, right? And if I were to lead the fiddle life, I would perhaps disfavor it, but disfavor it uh, less than the uh, philosopher life from that point of, from this point of view. Then that shows that the philosopher life is better for me than my fiddle life. So you look, just look at the diagonal in that sense. No, and one pos positive thing with this kind of approach then is that you go back to the vantage problem, vantage point problem, so that it seems to evade it, right? Because we're not looking for one unique single vantage point right, from which to compare to alternative options. Again, you just look at each life here, the, what myself and the philosopher self view about the philosopher life, my fiddle self view about the fiddle life, 
and that's it. They each have a say on their own life, and then you compare the attitudes that's there. And then you can sort of somehow, somehow, you can evade a little bit the problem of which as many people have been discussing, I and mean, how do you do it when you have two different lives that are so difficult to compare from one point of view because they require different kind of experiences to even be fully grasped, like the option of being an Amish farmer or being a city banker, say. You can have perhaps more extreme cases, but perhaps it's in order to appreciate, understand, actually understand what it means to be an Amish uh, farmer, you need to have certain experiences which are actually excluded by the experience you need to in order to understand being a city banker. Uh, and then you might think, well, I don't, there's no such thing, vantage point which I can have the form of preference, so therefore we can't apply preference theory. I will avoid that because, you, as I said, you look at for each life uh, what the, that person there thinks about that life, and then you compare the two attitudes across lives. So, um, objections then. Well, one obvious objection here is the regret. I haven't said anything about regret. And if you're just focus, focusing on the diagonal, you seem to be forced to say here that these are equally good lives, right? Because they are favored to the same extent. But look, isn't there a significant difference here that if I were to go for the y, uh, y life, then I would favor to be five, but I would actually regret it. Right? It's a regret. But if I went for the X life, I wouldn't regret it when I compare it to the Y life, because I would prefer it to that. So you might think that uh, what is can compare unfavorably with what might have been, and you might think that actually should uh, have an effect on well-being. And my account is completely, completely insensitive to this, actually. So you might think that's extreme. I think that that's a good objection, and I think actually the um, it's not so... Um, I have a quite long discussion about why I think it perhaps doesn't work at the end. I'm just going to give you one, one of the objections. And that has to do with the idea, if you think regret should somehow be captured in terms of pairwise comparisons, which seem to be quite plausible, then you can easily construct uh, a cyclical betterness ordering if you think that regret factor should be a tiebreaker. So in this case, you have five, five, five. No matter which life you live, you will have the same favoring, same degree, but the regrets Regret factors will uh, differ, right? So in this particular case, if you look at uh, the X life and the Y life, then it is better for you according to this theory, since your X life comes with less pairwise regret. So it, times the break, they, it breaks the tie, right? So it's minus five here, right? The, the regret. For the same reason, your Y life is better for you than your Z life, since your Y life comes with less pairwise regret, zero instead of five. But your Z-life is actually better for you than your X-life, since it comes with less pairwise regret, Z instead of 5. So it's uh, a tiebreaker would lead you then to a circular betterness ordering. And you might think that's okay, Temkin, and other people, well, Temkin, <laughs> think that's okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it, uh, perhaps it's not conceptually impossible, but it's definitely not an attractive feature, because it's a bit difficult to use this as a guide for action, obviously. Uh, you might want to know what should I do that right in these cases where you have this circle and so on. So it's, it's not an attractive uh, feature of a theory that leads to the circle of better and so on if you want to use it to guide your action. So I think that's the uh, one problem with this regret uh, view. And another one is per perhaps it's actually unnecessary, right? Because it depends a little bit how you define the favorings. But because suppose that I'm satisfied with my actual career 
but I feel deep regret that I was never able to write a certain book. Then you might think, well, that feeling of deep regret surely is relevant to my well-being. But if you think that favorings are global attitudes that should sort of be sensitive to all the features, experiential and non-experiential features of your life, then you might think, well, the global attitude should not be sensitive to that feeling of regret, and therefore that will be captured by your global attitude. So if you really feel deep regret, uh, but you're satisfied about the career, then on the whole, there's an issue about what you, whether you favor or disfavor that one, and how much you favor it if you favor it. And that's up to the subject to, to take into account. So you can then take into account feelings of deep regret in this model, and, and in that sense, not be completely insensitive to regret.